Welcome to Guitar Villains. I'm your host, Tyler Larson. Why guitar villains, you ask? Well, because villains are cooler than heroes. It's just a fact. This is a podcast by guitar players for guitar players, and over the course of this series, we'll talk to some of the most innovative and creative minds in the guitar community, find out what makes them tick, and find out how we can become better guitar players ourselves. Thank you for watching the video podcast here on YouTube, and you can also listen to the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Today's guitar villain is Joe Satriani. Known in his truest form as a literal alien, Satriani's music can certainly transport you to various places in the universe. And after paving the way for so many guitar players after him, Satch is still the master of the six-string sonic highway we're all driving down. With dozens of Grammy nominations and what seems like an endless catalog of music, Joe is constantly innovating and always inspiring in the realm of guitar. And if you know me, you know how pumped I am to have Joe on this episode of Guitar Villains. Welcome to Guitar Villains, the show where we deconstruct and decode the guitar. And Joe, I feel like we're sort of kindred spirits in that we both left our budding football careers, which totally <laughs> would have panned out and we would be in the NFL today. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> instead, instead, we became guitar players. But uh, I was actually a soccer player in high school and I was recruited to be the kicker. It turned out I was good and the end of the season... I had a choice to either go play football in like Gainesville or Poughkeepsie, New York, or go to music school in Boston. I don't know about you. I think I made the right choice. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's good though. I mean, you know, sports is great. Music yeah. is so physical uh, that uh, anything that you can add to being in touch with your body is great. I think, I think it always helps the, the musical experience uh, and, and being a musician, being in touch with every little muscle and joint uh, is so important. And so, yeah, if you can dance or play soccer, whatever it is, uh, that's great. As yeah. long as you don't. We have some athleticism yourself. about us, right? <laughs> yeah. Small movements, very tiny movements, but um, still it's really, it's about connecting your heart and your mind uh, to your body, you know, and, and that's really what it is. And it's, it's using all your senses and, uh, but ultimately the guitar doesn't play itself, you know? What right. I mean? <laughs> right. Indeed. And for, for context, anybody who doesn't know you were 14 years old, your friend, while you're about to head out to the football practice, told you that Jimi Hendrix had passed away and you immediately went and quit the team and vowed to become a guitar player. And this story is well documented. I don't want to rehash it, but the one thing I want to clarify is you didn't yet play the guitar when you made that decision is that right uh that's right yeah i had only okay. you know i've been a drummer since uh the age of nine uh i took lessons i think for about three years uh my teacher was a jazz guy and uh but it, in the course of those three years i started to notice that i just wasn't feeling like i was really connecting 100 percent, and i just thought okay. You know, when you're a kid, you're so impatient. And I was very impatient with the lack of my progress. And I just thought, boy, everybody sounds better than me, uh, you know. And then, you know, as you start to get into 
10, 11, 12, you really start getting distracted by fun, sex, right. whatever it is that's going on. And so I've tried to remember like, you know, what was my thought process? But I think it was more of a overwhelming feeling than anything else. Mm. Uh, it seemed logical to me. I had quite the time that night at dinner convincing the family uh, that that's what I was going to do. I literally, you know, announced at dinner, stood up and said, okay, everybody, you know, <laughs> and this is what's going to happen. And it was like a moment of silence followed by everybody yelling and screaming. You spoke it Typical. into existence. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, you know, uh, it's funny. I always thought that, um, the, the feeling of loss was the biggest thing I felt like mm -hmm. it, I couldn't understand how am I going to get through the next week of school without having Jimi Hendrix in my life, you know, and, and that's how important music was to me. And I just thought, well, then you have to provide the music. I wasn't thinking I'd ever be as good as him or I'd replace him or any of that. It, mm -hmm. it was nothing logical or concrete. It was more like a, uh, a, a, uh, an emotion that uh, uh, there was loss and I had to fill it. And that was the only thing that seemed uh, to make sense was to play guitar. Um, and then, of course, I found out how hard it was <laughs> and yeah. how much it hurt my fingers. And, and yeah. uh, you know, like every other beginner, I just sucked. And I was just like, wow, how do I, how do I get from nowhere to square one at least? Well, that's know? a good so. a lesson for everybody. Joe Satriani once sucked a guitar. So ne <laughs> you never have to feel bad. So we do yes, things yeah. uh, a little bit differently on this show, Joe. We're going to play some games. I'm going to try to get to the bottom of what makes you tick as a musician, and hopefully you'll have a great time. And maybe the next time touring is back on the menu and you're coming through Nashville, we can uh, we can link up if you're if you're coming through maybe like the Ryman or something like that. I don't know. Oh, I'd be Where great play to play there. there again, yeah. 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 So this show is called Guitar Villains because villains, I think, are cooler than heroes. I've always found the characters a little deeper and more complex more memorable so the first thing i want to ask is out of all the movie or comic book villains out there who would you say you identify with the most and this could be simple as appearance or as nuanced as a character trait and if you want you know it's kind of uh -huh. a strange question i can give you my answer for which villain i think you're most like and you can respond with a different choice or agree well, yeah, let, let me hear what you think. That's pretty funny. I'd, I'd, I'd like to hear what, you know, your idea of what my hero or villain is. <laughs> okay. So there's the obvious, like, oasis in the desert, you know, the no bones about it answer, which is, of course, the silver surfer. But yeah, here's the yeah. thing. I, uh, I don't really consider <laughs> him a villain. Oh, look, there you, got, he is. you got a little figurine <laughs> right there. <laughs> I don't yeah, really see, consider... It's kind of weird when you put the two together. I mean, one of them... One of them's a little bit bigger than the other, but you can see. Oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> Striking similarity, right? There is a yeah. resemblance yeah. there. But yeah. I don't know about you. I don't think he's really a villain at all. Plus, that's way too easy of a comparison. It feels like a shortcut, which isn't how I roll. Yeah. So, in my opinion, your real supervillain alter ego is Mr. Johnson from a 1957 film called Not of This Earth. <laughs> and Mr. Johnson, in case you don't know, he's an alien from the planet Devana, and he has a sensitivity to high decibel and frequency levels, sounds, and he looks like a human, but he's conspicuous only for his silted and formal way of speaking and his sunglasses, which he wears even in the dark. And yeah. the reason he wears <laughs> these sunglasses 
is because he has to hide his white blank eyes, his blank stare. He uses these eyes to kill his victims by burning through their eyes into their brains. And he removes the blood of his victims using a system of tubes and canisters that he keeps in an aluminum attache case, which may be like a guitar case. Who knows? So (laughs) we don't insinuate true evil on guitar villains. Of course, this is all. I don't think you're actually a vampire alien, but (laughs) these resemblances are quite uncanny. Like, first of all, sensitivity to high frequency sounds, I think. I'd say out of any guitar player, you've played the largest gamut of low and high frequencies thanks to that trusty whammy bar. So you've been all the way down low and all the way, like it may be as high as any guitar player or as low as they've ever gone. And yeah, I you clearly know high, what to yeah. listen for. In uh, the sunglasses at all times of day, I mean, that's basically your calling card and you're, you might be the only person in the world who can get away with doing that. And of course, the film title not of this earth it's the name of your first record so yes, yes. that's what into that's going into the mindset that might be your villain doppelganger i could do that you know it's if people haven't seen the film but this is what ha- this is basically this the production effects were pretty good they basically he'd take off his glasses and you heard <laughs> which was you know the sound effects guy crumpling some paper off camera but um so you know that film Oh my God! All right, so here's the story. It's just such a funny story. So, okay, so I thought this was uh, a deep cut, but you got it. You- no, when I was in high school, um, I was in a couple of different bands, and um, and and a few of us were were in bands together, different things. Anyway, one of my friends, Michael Arculio, was a Beatle fanatic, and he was a drummer. And he wanted to just have a Beatle band, right? And so, yeah. meanwhile, I'm the singer in the band and myself and the bass player as well, we were, we were in our own band that, that did quite well playing Zeppelin, Sabbath, Stones, that whole kind of thing. And um, anyway, so, but we're in this band with Michael because he's a cool guy and we all love the Beatles. So we're playing Beatles songs upstairs in this room every day, rehearsing like crazy. And every once in a while we go down to the kitchen, his mom makes us sandwiches or something. And there's a little, TV. This is like ancient history, but anyway, uh, back then when there was uh, no cable and just a couple of channels going, and there'd always be uh, the the uh, the low rent channel on. I think it was channel nine on Long Island, and uh, or thirteen, no nine. I think it was channel nine, and they're showing uh, you know B and C movies all the time. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so this one movie is on like all the time for those few months that we're rehearsing and it happens to be the movie not of this earth and the four of us memorize the entire movie because every time we took a break we go down the tv would be on and you know there'd be the movie so we just adopted the the script into our day-to-day language and um (laughs) that's okay so fast forward years later i relocated out to the west coast i'm living in uh berkeley california I get this idea to make the leap from doing a little avant-garde EP to a full-length album. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, I want to come up with a title. And uh, I had this song that I called Not of This Earth. Um, and I thought, you know, if I make this the title of the album, maybe my friends will see it and they'll they'll know where to get a hold of me. Because I was putting out the record on my own label and my apartment's address was printed on the back of the the sleeve, you know, so it's the only reason why I did it was just to 
to say hi to the three other guys because I lost contact. <laughs> you put it out them. into the universe. So, yeah. So I just very innocently thought, you know, I'm nobody. I haven't got a career in instrumental music. I'm not even trying. And so I just did it as a joke. Right. Right. So then fast forward, uh, Steve Vai insists on sending the album to a guy named Cliff Coltrary at a small label out of New York who just signed him for his flexible record. And Steve's idea was if they sign me for flexible, which is the weirdest record ever, he said, they're definitely going to sign you. So I said, well, you can go ahead and send it to him. He'll probably, he, he won't call me back. Anyway, he did. I got signed. The next album that I did for them was Surfing with the Alien. And then that's when the whole career took off. But I still had this album. It did work because my friends on the East Coast did see me and the and, and the title of the movie and everything. Jeez. They got the joke and they called me up. So that was the only reason why <laughs> I did it. So it's so funny that you should just bring that up because it is not a well-known film. That it is never really weird. I mean, I, I do award. a lot of research it for It has sound show. effects like this. Yeah. <laughs> for the burning of the brain and everything. Um, but I still, every once in a while, I say, Gandolayla, you know. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I have the script memorized, you know. Jeez. I, I, I identified with the... Uh, the, the really young uh, vacuum cleaner uh, salesman, remember? Right, and he says, right, right. I can turn flip-flops in your uh, I found as much of it as I could on YouTube to try and piece it, because <laughs> I couldn't get it on Amazon. And uh, yeah, it's, it seems like an interesting film. I'll find a way to view the whole thing at one point or another. <laughs> yeah, you'll have a good laugh. <laughs> That's great. So uh, first things first, Joe, I have a couple softball lobs for you. I call okay. this segment Burning Questions. So these are rapid fire questions that if you were to okay. conduct a, uh, a live master class where anyone could ask you questions about anything they want regarding music, these are the questions they would ask you, which uh -huh. don't totally matter, but they must be answered. Okay. What gauge pick do you use? Oh, extra heavies. Most of the time, if I'm playing melodies, solos, it seems like the extra heavy pick um, just makes everything sound a little bit thicker up and down the neck. And that's what I've noticed about pick thickness is the, you know, the thinner the, the pick is, the more it reveals its mass as you traverse the strings and the fretboard. Mm. Um, if I'm strumming, I might go to a medium. If I'm strumming an acoustic guitar that's supposed to be just part of a, a large group of instruments in a track, I'll use a thin pick. Um, and, uh, that's about it. But I, I keep a lot of picks on hand, Great. different, you know, different kinds, but mainly it's extra heavy. What gauge strings do you use? Now that's interesting. Um, so for years I tuned to 440 and I used nines. That was kind of like my thing. Uh, then about 10 years ago, uh, when I got together with, uh, Chad, Michael and Sammy, uh, to form chicken foot. Uh, Sammy at the time was doing E flat and because, and because he and Michael had been with Van Halen for so long and they kind of adopted that tuning. And so I thought, okay, I'll drop down. And then after about six months, my tech and, and I, we just were getting so frustrated that we had 440 guitars, uh, with nines. And then we had these E flat guitars with tens on them. And I said, you know what? I need to 
make a decision here. Mm -hmm. So I just said, let's just make everything tens at E flat and we'll just stay there. That way I can go from my gig to chicken foot and I don't have to, you know, have a whole separate set of guitars. Uh, so it did make life easier. And I started to notice that again, traversing up and down playing melodies and solos, I did gain, uh, something in terms of, uh, Thickness, maybe, uh, of uh, of tonality. I had to work a little harder to get strings to sort of crack open and sound thinner, which is really important when you're trying to kind of vocalize a melody. Right. Um, and, you know, because if you don't, then it just sounds like you're playing scales or something. It's a, it's a, it's a particular problem for electric guitarists. Um, but recently, uh, since I've been home a lot and, you know, I'm the one changing all the strings, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. usually, you know, on tour, Mike does everything. I get new strings on all the guitars every night. Spoiled, absolutely yeah. spoiled rock star. Especially you know? with those Floyd Roses. So, it's not, not necessarily an easy task all the time. It isn't. And, and Mike does an amazing job. Keeps me really in tune. So I started fooling around because I've been doing a lot of sessions for different people. And I started to listen to their tracks and I'm thinking, you know, my thing doesn't necessarily fit. So what can I do to fit? So sometimes I'd put 11s or 12s and sometimes I'd put nines. Sometimes I go all the way to eight. So, uh, the last two or three days I've been, uh, working on something for, for another musician who's doing an orchestral thing. And, uh, it's sort of like a orchestra with, uh, with some techno elements, um, but it's real orchestra. And I thought, well, this is kind of interesting because the electric guitar has got to fit mm -hmm. in this massive thing. Not only do you have this beautiful sonic spread of a full orchestra, and, and we're talking, you know, London Philharmonic, but we're also talking where he's adding elements that are uh, software-based, you know. Right, um, right. And so I'm thinking, okay, so I'm somewhere in between the analog and the digital. And so um, I've got two seven-string guitars, one with tens, one with nines, one at 440, one at E-flat. Uh, I've got melody guitars with uh, tens at E-flat and melody and solo guitars uh, with eights um, at 440. And they're all occupying the session right now kind of next to each other. And it's it's been a bit confusing you know, for the fingers, it takes me a few minutes to remind myself, like when I go to eights, to relax a little bit. Yeah, the bending, but, especially, and yeah, yeah. But the the payoff is the expressiveness, and and uh, if I didn't tell you, like if I was playing you a track and I didn't tell you it was eights, you just you wouldn't guess it. And because you know, guitar players were very sensitive to the tactile response, but actually, the audience is hearing something entirely different. Um, and, and and so that's what I've been toying with. There's really a world. Uh, of uh, expressiveness in there, just playing around with your string gauges. Um, it's really interesting cool. uh, w what you can do. Um, a little a little side note, if anybody read that Pete Townsend book, there's a great little nugget of information in there about how he was taught by, um, oh, I forget the guy's name, uh, Lonnie Donegan or, or Dwayne Eddy or somebody, um, uh, to to take his G string and and make it a B string, and that way when he does double stop bends, they they move in pitch pretty much closer to each other than if it had been a regular G and a B. I thought that was really remarkable, oh, just cool. for a little thing you can do. It's it's almost like Telecaster players going to a higher gauge for their first strings to get rid of that typical 
Fender Tele string buzz that's always on the first string yeah, for some yeah. reason, you know. Um, so, yeah, you should play around with your gauges. I guess that's the short answer. All right, a lot of insight there on the string gauges. What is your yeah. number one guitar? Um, it's probably that guy over there, the Chrome guitar. Okay. Although the the the, uh, the MCR over there, that's the one with the eight. So mm-hmm. that that's uh, four forty at eights, and uh, the Chrome guitar. That's number three. It was not supposed to be my main Chrome guitar. I basically got three at the start of last year. Um, one was the prototype uh, of the uh, JS1CR that I approved, and number two was the first one that came uh, out of the factory, so to speak. You know, and uh, and I took those on the on the uh, the tours with me, so they got uh, played and banged up like crazy on the Experience Hendrix tour, which is where I got the the t-shirt. Yeah, that, that's the a cool shirt, shirt um, right there. And um, so number three, number three was, three like was the, left at home. That right? was like and, the the perfect porridge or something. There was like first one's too hot, too cold. This one's just right. I it surprised me. I just thought it was the one that didn't feel right, so I left it at home. And then every time I come back from the tour, I would pick it up and use it to record demos for shape shifting. And then I go back out on tour and I play number one and number two every night, and I, you know come back home play number three and then. As I started to send the demos out, everyone was telling me like, hey, whatever guitar you used on that demo, man, bring that. That thing sounds great. Yeah. And so I, it was just like one of those things, like the guitar that you know that you ignored turned out to be the, your favorite guitar. Uh, it's harder to play for some reason. I don't know why. And I left the action really high, which I don't normally play with high action. But yeah. um, it's it seemed to uh, – it helped me sort of calm down – the note quantity a bit and and the shape shifting album i didn't want it to be a shred fest you know i really wanted to concentrate on the melodies a lot more so i thought okay i'll, I'll bring along a guitar that's going to make me struggle a bit and and maybe you know one out of six notes <laughs> I'll, I'll get rid of so it'll just sound right <laughs> nice two more questions what's your favorite amp your number one amp it's probably my own, my JVM, uh, you know, they, they don't, Marshall doesn't make it anymore, but, um, uh, the, it's got the longest name ever, right? It's a Marshall JVM 410 HJS. Uh, yes. Rolls highly, off the highly memorable. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, I love that thing. Every time I play that, if I'm just like in, in one of my practice rooms and I'm just playing along with the with my playlist or something, I just feel so comfortable. And then every night when I walk out on stage and I turn that thing up and we pray, we, we, you know, we we're playing it pretty loud. Maybe it's 114 DB or something like that. Um, it, it just feels great to me. It just mm-hmm. always sounds right. And, uh, you know, my, my gig is different than most people. I play melodies and solos all night long. That's it. You know, it's kind of like the gig. And I play way up the neck, as you pointed out at the beginning of the show. I play some crazy high notes and I and uh, I go all the way down. So um, this amp that uh, was designed uh, for me by engineer Santiago Alvarez really meets a lot of the issues that I had with other amps that I love, you know, vintage Marshalls and Fenders that for my gig are always inappropriate for something and you i just can't get through a gig with using a, amps like that right. um so uh, this one solves that issue of 
let's say if I was going to be specific, like when you go to play a song like Friends, which is really high up the neck, you can't have the same piercing, screeching tone that a four-bar solo would have or an eight-bar solo where you're supposed to rip somebody's head off and yeah. then go back to the singer who's but got that's a nice sounding a, voice. You that's, know? That song so, in particular is also down-tuned. What, is it drop D flat or drop? It's it's actually, uh, it's a drop D tuning, but we're all at E flat. So it's pretty, right, it's that's quite what low. it is. Yeah, yeah, it sounds so like C sharp. It, high, um, it, high, it has like both the ability to take that high frequency, but also the girth of the low end, which is sometimes hard for some ants. They get a little flubby or whatever. They do, yeah. And, you know, album after album, since I guess we had the prototype for the first Chicken Foot record and we worked through it, all the way through there, we all the albums since then. So that's ten years worth of albums, which is a lot of records we did. Um, that that particular setup using my fifty one fifty and uh, and the JVM using the same two speaker bottoms, uh, you know, just a stock nineteen sixty B and an old nineteen around nineteen sixty eight sixty nine slant four by twelve basket weave. Um, with original greenbacks in it, those two seem to be the you know the workhorse setup yeah. uh, for for so many situations. It's pretty remarkable. Um, yeah, it's it's a great sounding amp, extremely flexible, and uh, but the main thing is I can just turn the thing up, and it's I mean it's been designed exactly for what I like, so uh, it's it's a lot of fun. Last burning question: favorite guitar mm-hmm. pedal. Oh, whew. that's a tough one. That's really tough. Um, yesterday, I, I brought, um, no, what did I do? Yesterday, I brought this one out again. Um, oh, cool. This Drybell Vibe Machine, it is, really is great. Is that the one that um, you used on Corey Wong's new song? Yes, I did, yeah. Okay, really, he was just really on the show, helped. and uh, I was talking to him about that song. And I, I, re- I was like, there's something to that tone because I was talking about how you complimented his very clean style so well. And I thought maybe that, that I don't know why that just popped into my head, but it seems like maybe you, it had a vibe element. Very subtle, though. Yes. Yeah. Well, you have the ability um, to make it uh, pretty subtle. Well, one of the things that's really nice about it is that it, I think it addresses, uh, you know, the modern amp setup. Uh, if you go with like an original Univibe, which was really, I mean, decades old, and we, you know, we all think about Hendrix playing Machine Gun. I mean, it's just like the most iconic thing. But the recording of that is <clears throat> is quite unique, and his setup was quite unique, and doesn't really work in today's sonic uh, landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, specifically. Um, the super high-end transients that poke through, and then just this unbridled low end, which eventually it just gets carved out by anyone mixing a modern album. And it can drive other gear crazy if you're constantly sending too much of something you know, into a limiter and it's reacting. And it's, it's actually uh, taking away things from the part of the performance uh, that, that should be getting through, you know, so, um, you, you can dial up total vintage, you know, Univibe in this, but you can also pre-carve it so that by the time the effect gets to the amp, it's not driving all those things in the amp crazy and any limiter or compressor you might have, uh, in, in processing, uh, the, the audio signal right before it goes to a mix, 
um, and it allows it to be more present, which I, I think is what you want. And certainly when you got a really funky track um, like Massive, you don't want to be covering it up. You know, you want right. to fit in. Uh, you got to jump out, but at the same time, you you want to be able to fit in because it's so gorgeous sounding, you know, what Corey d- does with his buddies. It's just great. So uh, it, the pedal really helps. So, yeah, today I would say that's that's my favorite. <laughs> Today's episode of Guitar Villains is brought to you by Guitar Super System. Are you tired of YouTube ads telling you that YouTube guitar lessons suck? Me too. I don't know about you, but somebody setting an acoustic guitar on fire or teaching crappy cover songs in front of a musty black curtain feels a little disingenuous to me. I'll get straight to the point. Join tens of thousands of other guitar players and visit guitarsupersystem.com to join the most popular independent guitar learning platform on the internet. If you're a beginner, there's an entire curriculum called the Beginner's Corner just for you. If you're an expert, the music theory and technique curriculums reach the highest levels of mastery and are based on industry standard learning methods I've used since graduating Berklee College of Music. If you're somewhere in the middle, you're actually the perfect candidate. The Choose Your Destiny approach allows you to cater your learning experience to exactly what you want to accomplish, whether that's improving your improvising, ear training, learning new techniques, songwriting, and more. You'll also have access to private live streams, lesson comments, and a community forum for feedback, as well as exclusive giveaways and new curriculum releases. The best part is everything that I just mentioned is included in one monthly subscription and you can cancel anytime or like a lot of people do upgrade your subscription to a yearly pass. Of course you can also just learn guitar right on YouTube for free because YouTube guitar lessons don't suck if you know where to look. So check out guitarsupersystem.com. Now back to Guitar Villains. Now we're gonna move on to play a little game I call Name those notes. <laughs> the concept is pretty simple. I'll play you a quick sequence of guitar notes from songs you've recorded over the years. <laughs> and you have to tell me what song those notes come from. So we're going to see how well you know your catalog and how well you can recognize your guitar playing. And it'll spur some conversation about the music. Okay. So we're going to start with something easy that I think you'll get, and then things will get progressively harder. Does that sound good? (laughs) I love it. (laughs) All right, let's go. Yeah. (laughs) Now, I wrote that song uh, upstairs on a piano, believe it or not, right? Um, Mysterion. And I use this pedal. To record, I seem to have everything like in ultimate arm's reach. Isn't that weird? Tone. We did not plan this, but uh, yeah, the ultimate octave, the old one. Yeah, maybe. Um, uh, so that's from Professor Satchafunklis and the Mysterion of Rock. Maybe your finest album title, might I say? Oh, thank I, you. I want to ask I, you. Hold on a second. Okay. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not supposed to be stepping out of camera. I think oh, I actually okay. use this. I think oh, is that the uh, Hendrix? Is that have the picture of Hendrix on it? Or it's. Yeah, uh, it's yeah, one of yeah, those. It's a yeah. Hendrix Dunlop. Okay, I used to have that pedal way back in the day. That's yeah. an awesome. I, had I don't the, know why I got rid of it. I had the original one, which is a pain because it didn't have the battery thing. It was just drove us crazy. Oh, cool. So we never knew if it was dying or not. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I remember one of. The, I just love the chords. They're just the weirdest chords ever, you know. And but it was just me early in the morning playing these chords on the piano, thinking. I'm going to bring this in and the rest of the band is going to go, huh? You know, um, 
Uh, Kunaberti loved it because he loves weird stuff. Yeah. The moment that um, I was coming back in the studio after getting a coffee or something like that, and and uh, uh, Jeff was in the corner and he's just banging things and he, he's got his bongos. <laughs> and uh, so I go into the control room and I say, "Hey, John, you got to you got to mic up Jeff right away. Let's just." Before I even ask him, just like set it up and then we'll roll the track and I'll just like, you know, surprise him, you know, because sometimes when yeah. you have crazy ideas, if you sit down with everybody, you know, in a meeting, right. And you say, okay, now I've got this great idea. You're going to play bongos. You're going to do the slide whistle. People have, a, you know, they start to object because they have ideas in their mind about how they wanted to appear on your album. Totally. So you've, you know, you sometimes you got to surprise them and say, no, we're just doing this. Don't worry about it. It's just a little mm -hmm. funny thing to have. Um, but of course, once we heard the bongos, it did something to the weird guitar sound, which is it, it helped you like take it in. Yeah, I need to listen really, to that now. Now that you say that, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back and listen for that. That's a way better context for the song than I was gonna ask. So that's perfect. <laughs> okay. All right, we got another group of notes for you. You ready? Yes. Here we go. Yes, I know that right away. Little Worth Lane. Uh, I wrote that on piano as well. Um, but the first time I wrote that was uh, in a car driving to New York city. Uh, I was just, I had spent some time with my mom out at her house, um, in Seacliff. And, uh, I was, uh, in the, in limo, you know, or a town car or something like that, leaving Long Island. And that song sort of came to me. And I remember thinking, okay, just remember every single note in your head, you know, and just sort of like, uh, catalog it the music feels like home you know it's kind of you said little worth lane was a, a home of yours okay so it, well that that's yeah that's the name of the street where um, my mother's home was right because yeah. it, it's interesting the way instrumental music and titling is so hard but that music the for the chord progression and the melodic you know ideas that you craft it really does feel like i'm going back home and i you did a really good job conveying that and well, a, per, a personal aside, my dad loves that song, and it reminds him of his mom. Oh, oh so, wow. <laughs> some kindred spirits there as well. That's really, really nice. Oh, great. It was <laughs> Got a couple more, uh, couple more for okay. you here. Ready? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is there love in space? Yeah. <laughs> this uh, this uh, feels like a transmission through the dark <laughs> expanse of the universe. Uh, is, yeah. is this the Hendrix part of the equation coming through? Just making noises with the guitar nobody ever thought to make? Like, yeah, I guess so. I I love uh, I love weird sounds. Um, I was doing it last night. It's funny. I had uh, I've been working on a session that shouldn't have any weird noises on it, and <laughs> um, I I actually plugged in some stuff improperly on purpose and just recorded me banging the guitar to see what would come out. And I, I did come up with a soundscape that I think the client is going to be very happy or very upset about. <laughs> surprised. Well, they're without a doubt, surprised. They're hiring Joe Satriani. They're, they can expect <laughs> a little bit of, uh, you know, something psychedelic. But I, yeah, I, I so. think, you know, Hendrix certainly pioneered the, the concept, but... I don't know if it matters what I think, but I think you've accomplished your goal you set out to do on the football field 
like kind of taking <laughs> what he did and carrying on the torch because the sounds you make actually you know he sometimes the sounds he made were just for pure spectacle and sometimes they were brilliantly musical i feel like the sounds yeah. you make actually have musical context like i could actually notate that little transmission if you will and <laughs> it, it's really delightful well uh i tell you I, i'm very happy to hear you say that um i everything that all the noises that the guitar can make i really love and and i i can relate to it in a really strange way like it's a language to me you know that that sometimes feel like it feels like a secret language but i know there are people out there who get it uh, like yourself who understand it um and and you know quite innocently in this little room i think i was recording that song and and on the wall over there was a a picture of an alien that my son who was very young at the time had drawn and i just remember i was writing the song to the picture mm. and to his to his artwork and i started to think you know uh in you know, a child's innocence you know they 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 expect love wherever they go because that's how they grow up they're just cared for and loved you know and and that's one of the problems when you become older is you go out and you realize the world is not all about love you know yeah. and so i but i'm looking at the alien and i'm thinking i wonder if you know the concept of love is anywhere else uh, outside the the planet earth is it just you know is it just a human thing and that's it and so when we get out there it's not the radiation or the lack of oxygen or water that's going to be a problem. It's going to be the fact that the concept of love is just not recognized at all, which is be a big problem for us. <laughs> An unanswerable uh, question that that maybe maybe we'll we'll ponder for the rest of our days here. Yes. <laughs> all right. I got I got another group of notes here. We're getting a little bit more difficult. Okay. Here we go. Mm. Wow. Where did you find that recording? Wow. Uh, that's, I, I'm going to guess that's uh, me playing with Mick Jagger at the Tokyo Dome. That's is exactly that what, that what is? it is. <laughs> wow. So maybe, oh my God. maybe some people don't realize uh, your first big break was you got the gig playing with Mick Jagger on his solo tour in the 80s. And yeah. I've heard you say what a consummate professional he was. Is there s some experience on the road? that sticks out maybe something you haven't shared about that period of time before on the tour on that particular tour um well i've been interviewed like crazy about it um and uh but it's um <laughs> there were so many funny things that uh we shared as a group of people you know one of one of the things that uh, Mick was so great at was just making everybody feel like we were all in the band together. Right. And, and uh, he just had a way of making everybody feel comfortable about it. Um, but he, he worked the hardest and he put out the most, you know, but we had just the funniest of times um, that are really small little nuggets that, that, you know, would make us all just laugh so hard that we couldn't continue. Everyone would fall down on the ground, you know, or something like that, just like stupid stuff. And I, they, those moments stick out with me because, you know, there's, there's all the moments that were written about in the press, you know, the, the, the things that were successful, the things that were tragedies and, and, but I got to see him deal with the chaos of life, you know, that there's, there's always conflict in life and, and, uh, and, but he, 
you know, he dealt with it and we got through the tour. We got through two tours and all of that was happening while he was kind of feuding with Keith and finally going back to the stones, which is where I always knew he was going to be going. So it wasn't like a conflict with me, but I could see from my perspective that that was something he had to really, uh, to handle. Um, but I mean, I think one there there are two things that stick out in my mind, which I always remember as being so cool. Um, one was uh, when he, he liked to like when you were doing a solo or something, he'd like to interact with you in a very theatrical way, mm-hmm. but always very supportive, you know, never, you know, because he knew that like. Okay, Joe takes a solo here. He's got to stand over here. The lights are going to hit him. It's going to be loud. I want to make sure that my guitar player is just like raging at that moment. So whatever I can do to frame him. So he would do things and you had to realize not to let it throw you off because he's so crazy in his physical movement. Yeah. Right. And and Doug and I, uh, Doug Wimish, the bass player, and I used to always agree that you couldn't watch Mick if you were grooving because he doesn't move like a regular guy. He's out there dancing like Jerry Lewis or Jim Carrey or something. He's, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And if you start looking at him, all of a sudden you lose your beat, you know, because he he's not grooving to you. He's acting for the, for the audience, you know what I mean? He's doing something that's on a higher level of performance. Anyway, I do remember I was playing some solo, maybe it was that one you played and he just came over and he bit me on the shoulder and I thought, (laughs) and you know, I kept saying to myself, you know, just keep going. That's Mick. That's what he does. He does weird things, but that was pretty weird. He just came over and he was like behind me and just making faces. Then he just, you know, (laughs) chomped down. (laughs) <laughs> he just decided to chomp down while I was playing, and I thought, that's great. Yeah. How many people can say they've been bitten by Mick Jagger while they're playing a solo in front of 90,000 people? <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, pretty epic. We'll leave it at that. I got one more group of notes for you. Here we go. All right. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, that is, I stole that, right, from... Uh, from Richie Blackmore, is that? Is that this is a stolen that, lick. Well, you know, when I hear that, you know, aren't they all stolen? I, yeah, I <laughs> we mean, all steal I steal from each other. I love Richie Blackmore, and of course, you know, I I spent six months playing with Deep Purple, and so I I I had the rare opportunity as a fan to join the epic, you know, lineup of Deep Purple. Yeah. And to experience doing that and to make believe just, you know, for a microsecond, like, hey, I'm in Deep Purple. Of course, I always knew I was just an American kid from Long Island that got to play with an epic British band. Um, And I I mean, always above me was Richie Blackmore (laughs) looking down at me going, huh, really? You're gonna play an Ibanez guitar and yeah, he he maybe looked gonna, at you like, whoa, that's some clean playing right there. <laughs> to put it to put it one way, you know, I read some you know, of the he's, stuff he said. Uh, was, Rich, Rich is a guy you can't you can't copy him, you can't replace him. He's just a, so many guitar players from that era w- were put so much personality into their sound, and they had such limited tools that their personality just came out. So when you go to you know, you can cop the notes and figure out the fingering, but you can never actually figure out their the the essence and the magic that goes into it. It was it's you know, 
It's like trying to, you can't, it's like Jimmy Page. You can't contain that. There's no, there'll never be a book that can explain the genius of Jimmy Page. It just, you you know, you can't do it. He's just too creative every microsecond that he plays a guitar. It's true. And and so any any attempt to sort of rein it in and and codify it is like, forget about it, you know? So So that solo, you, you, I don't know if you guessed the song. Did you guess the song? Oh, uh, I'm thinking I, I, what confused me is I used it on a, uh, a couple of things, but that's from the new record, right? It's, uh, it's from, uh, um, uh, uh, hear the blue river. No, it's, uh, no, no, it's from, um, uh, uh, what's the other one? I forget the title now. It's Where's falling. My- Stars, falling stars. Yes, yeah. falling stars. I, I, yeah. I gave you an interesting. I always give the hardest, like out of context passage for the last one because it could <laughs> fall in like seventeen different spots, especially with how many songs you have. But this is a good segue. Yeah. This is my favorite song on on the new record. Um, you had this awesome YouTube series where you broke down each song, and oh, yeah. I really enjoyed watching that. Do you do you know the book The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Yes, yeah, many so years ago. Right? I feel yeah. like you could write the musician's guide to the studio with, with all you've probably learned over the years, you've already kind of demonstrated some of that knowledge, like the way you were talking about how guitar pedals would affect the mix that you delivered to the engineer and things like that. So yeah, how, how much of those laws did you rely on during the recording of shapeshifting? Oh, wow. What a, uh, I mean, we could talk about that for hours. Uh, yeah. I mean, the main thing is for, I guess since, 98 i've done a lot of home recording um that has contributed either you know 99 percent or 50 percent of the end result guitars you know that wind up on the album mm-hmm. like a lot of people these days you know and and uh so uh this particular record shape-shifting uh, again contained i'm gonna I, i'll just throw in maybe it's 50 percent that the performances were done at home and they, they somehow survived the transition to a new studio, a new, uh, co-producer, a new band, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I'm always flexible about that. You know, uh, like a song like yesterday's yesterday, you know, I, I always thought we'd be using more elements from that. But as soon as I got in the room with the guys, I thought, Oh no, I have to change my part. You know, I got to react to this great thing that's happening here. Um, with falling stars, it's very complicated, uh, in, in a very subtle way. There's lots of layers of guitars that yeah. are doing little things. And, um, the, I, I should mention that when I brought the project to the band and to Jim Scott, who I had never worked with before, I said, look, I got this idea. Instead of me saying, we're going to do a reggae album or we're going to do a dance record or an EDM record or a metalcore record and every song's got to be put into that thing mm-hmm. to make you know pump uh in that particular direction I said let's do the opposite thing I'm going to bring 15 songs every song is totally different and I want us to break down and to reset ourselves and our gear for every song like we're almost like we're a different band for each song. And so we'll shape shift, yeah, hence mm. the title, for yeah. each one. So everyone got excited about that because it wasn't the usual thing that they would be asked to do for an album. And so every every morning, you know, the guys would show up and be like, wow, let's just break everything down and 
and screw it back together in some new way uh, with with what you know Jim and I decided uh, to do. So uh, working with Jim Scott was amazing. Uh, he just got fantastic ears. He's got this unbelievable creative attitude and knows how to handle people. Just like all the producers that I've worked with have been really great, you know, people, person, peoples, people, persons, people persons. whatever you want to call people, people, <laughs> people, people, um, they're just, they know, you know, they, they know how to handle the very volatile emotional situation of musicians letting their guard down and giving everything they have and not being afraid to make mistakes and all that kind of stuff. It's very necessary if you're going to get a great album. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and he plus that studio pliers in Valencia, California is so crazy. Yeah. It's just a, it looks such awesome. a personal, crazy warehouse that Jim put together and, uh, you just you go there and it's like the fun house of all time. You just want to have a great time. He gets great sounds and uh, so we 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 should know just practically you know uh, stating um, we had those two bottoms I talked about earlier. We had my 1960B. We had my very old basket weave cabinet. We had an alternative to both. You know like with some uh, vintage 30s and and another basket weave that for some reason doesn't sound as good as the other one i don't know why yeah uh and then um we had a bunch of brand new fender combos which i really like the hand wired ones and the custom ones so the the silver face and the black face we had uh princeton's deluxes um i had some uh new fender custom shop uh bandmaster stuff um i think i had my my uh, black face dual showman um, and on that particular song, uh, Jim had this idea like, well, why don't we start with the smallest amp and then, you know, wind up with the biggest one that can handle the the pedal, this guy here, uh, which is the, the last solo was done with the, Ooh, with the, the seven up. up. TC yeah, electronic, so, uh, great pedal. I use that for the song uh, uh, Big Distortion as well. Great sounding pedal, lots of fun. Very complex, always spits out a different sound every time you play, which I think is a really cool thing for a pedal to do, you know, not to repeat itself, you know. So, um, yeah, so we had all them uh, lined up in a row in the studio, and then we would uh, reamp. We use this here. Uh, it's all around you, all the <laughs> tools. <laughs> yes, John Cunaberti's original reamp. Uh, cool. that he in- invented uh, way back in the early 90s when we were doing the Time Machine album. Um, we That wound up being the one. Uh, and and I think I got this on eBay, actually, because uh, I kept giving all the ones that I had, I gave away to all my friends. And, and then I realized, hey, I don't have one. So um, anyway, um, that's a great device. Uh, it ha- It just, I don't know, it loves guitars and basses and it loves the amp that it sends it to so we did a lot of reamping of solos that uh, i had done at home and then we added guitars as well uh, fresh new guitars and um it, really interesting i mean that that's one of those songs that's got a lot of equipment on it mm-hmm. it's just you know i made a list of everything that i i sent to uh to journalists when the album was first coming out because it came out april 10th so i was doing a lot of press at the beginning of the year and i you know i realized i can't remember the whole list of things i did so i made a uh, a text file and i just 
you know, starting the interview, I said, look, I'm just going to send you this text file, <laughs> just whatever you want to do with it. But because I, I may, I may screw it up. I may forget, you know, what right. I, what pedal I used on what solo. Cause there's like six of them on there. Yeah. Know, so. <laughs> well, that's uh, an awesome album. And, and also like it came out obviously at the weirdest time in human history and I'm never yes. going to forget that. <laughs> and I'm always going to associate it with just the time, like a, a couple things, you know, during this time that came out, like for John Petrucci's album too, like they're, they're going to be tied to a certain point in a positive light as just being like this awesome, cool little distraction, if you will, if nothing else. Cause sometimes that's what music has to be. Um, it is, you know, we're, we're musicians. Uh, I, uh, John's record is amazing. I love the fact that he did it and he released it. Uh, our job is to make music for people. So that, why would we stop if we can do it? That's what we should keep doing. And, and, uh, you know, we'll get over the current crisis and the music will last forever. So, um, there's no reason for anybody to hold back. You know, yeah. the music business is always weird, by the way, it's never, it's never right. There's always chaos. And every, seems like every two years now you have to reevaluate what exactly the music business is. But, um, as I've been in the music business since I was 14 and it has always been weird and chaotic and crazy, there's never the right time for anything. So you just make music, give it to people and then make more music. <laughs> That's a good philosophy. I'm going to live by that. I have a couple little wind down questions you can answer in one sentence or as, as long as you'd like your favorite okay. airplane album, favorite thing to listen to flying on an airplane. Oh, something that really makes me think i mean i've spent a lot of time you know thirty thousand feet in the air as you can imagine touring the world so many times um i like the weird records uh you know can i a really quick story first time i heard videotape by radiohead was on an airplane and i didn't realize that the 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 cassette or whatever it is that they play music on was warped so I just remember it came on and I'm listening to it and I'm thinking, this is genius. They they literally went and they put a warped sounding song uh, on their record. And of course, this, the subject matter and everything about the song is weird anyway. Yeah. And I just I just remember having like a, you know, uh, a, a, a cathartic moment all the way up there in the air, you know, yeah. flying in a little metal tube, listening to this war piece of music. I was a little disappointed when I got home and I, I got the album and I listened to it and I thought, Oh, that doesn't sound weird at all. <laughs> but, um, it was a momentary, uh, uh, yeah, that, that is very interesting. It goes to show it you sticks. that when a piece of music hits you, yeah, that it's got nothing to do with technicalities. You know what I mean? And so like when, when guitar players are freaking out over their mixes and they're, you know, there'll be one dB more of 6K or whatever, ultimately it doesn't matter. You're just really stroking yourself, you know, that people are going to like it or they're not going to like it, and but not for reasons that you can ever control. That's true. Know? That's very true. And I think maybe your secret weapon to writing a good song might simply just be titling the song whatever the album name is because <laughs> I, I have this list here. I'm going to go real quick. Surfing with the Alien, Flying in a Blue Dream, Not of This Earth, The Extremist, Crystal Planet, Super Colossal, Shape Shifting, Shockwave Supernova, What Happens Next, and your best title track, in my opinion, Unstoppable Momentum. So there's something about the title tracks 
that maybe if you're, you know, in a rut, you're like, all right, well, I'm going to write the title track and this is going to be an amazing song. So there you go. <laughs> you can keep I that just, in your back I just pocket. write them. I, I remember you said that unstoppable momentum. I was sitting right over there in that corner when this room looked uh, quite different. But um, yeah, I, um, oh, I'm glad you love that song. There was, I got to tell you, there was a moment in the studio when we recorded unstoppable momentum where we had we had done a lot of really good takes and and i thought i just got a weird idea guys and i said what about Vinny? like when we get towards the end you just like freak out mm. and we'll we'll just keep playing the riff you but you just just completely go nuts i love that and he part, looked at yeah. me like like are you ready <laughs> <laughs> would you like to <laughs> unleash <laughs> the fire <laughs> and so so all of a sudden we, we go to do this one take and it's, a, you know, everyone's playing it cool. They want to, you know, get to the song, right? We get to that moment in this song and he just goes so crazy. Berserk. And I'm looking and we're, we're at, uh, you know, Skywalker. So it's a huge room, but I can see all the way, like 40 feet across the, the music room, the people in the control room are losing their minds. I look over, everyone is like screaming, like trying to follow the click in their headphones because- yeah. Vinny has finally unleashed the fury. <laughs> and, and then he comes right back, right at the end, and he just nails the ending. It was like, oh, my God, that's going on the record. <laughs> yeah. Some things so, you just need one pass, and you know. It's just like, that was yep, it. That's that it. That was it. You know, I know, I'm sure it's sort of, it was one of those things like, well, if you put it on the record, it's not a single. That's for sure. <laughs> but I said, well, no, that's, that's going on the record. Cause that was a moment that all of us shared. It yeah. was a beautiful moment in the history of the universe. And, and I want it to be preserved forever. <laughs> well, I'm glad, I'm glad that moment happened. I've enjoyed it many, many times. So final, uh, one final little game here very quickly. Yeah. Build a band. What four others in a band, living or dead, would you want to play with? So you're on guitar, four other people, anyone you want, any instrument, go. Oh, <laughs> well, I think um, I think uh, Elvin Jones on the drums and uh, Jaco Pistorius on the bass. Um, I I think uh, I'd have to have I think. Ray Thistlethwaite, my new keyboard player. I I put Ray on the keyboards. Um, do I get one more guy? Yep, one more. Well, you, yeah. I wonder if you take a bring in to sing. Maybe I get Robert Plant to sing. Uh, I love how Robert knows how to step out of the way. You know, when you listen to those, uh, what was it called? How the West Was Won. All the all the mm -hmm. live stuff that yeah. the Zeppelin stuff. First of all, Jimmy Page is godlike. I mean, he's just like an improvising. Guru. freakazoid you yeah. know um and uh, <laughs> he just like no matter how everybody all the fans hang on to every note that he played on the albums he just will not play it the way it's on the album he's just like every performance he does something so risky yeah so out there and robert plant just hangs in there with the band it's absolutely amazing uh he's he's like uh, uh billy holiday and and miles davis rolled into a uh, you know, a white rock and roll singer <laughs> from England. <laughs> Hard to it's do like that so as a singer to like, like have that talent of like existing on the stage when you're not singing. It's an underrated talent. Yeah. But he's part of the energy, you know, which yeah. is really interesting. Um, if anyone hasn't listened to the, his podcast, he's got some great podcasts where he, you can really 
tap into the the heart and soul and the mind uh, of Robert Plant. Yeah, Robert Plant a, has a podcast. Yes, he does. Oh yeah, wow! Dig, digging deep, I think it's called. I'm gonna have to check uh, that out. That's cool. Yeah. So finally, Joe, to loop in your guitar supervillain alter ego, I have one final question for you. Okay. <laughs> what do you believe about guitar that most guitar players would think is crazy? And this could be a hard truth guitar players need to hear or something you know that others don't, maybe a misconception about the instrument or whatever you want. What do you believe about the guitar or guitar playing that others may not? Hmm. Well, um, one thing's for certain. If you're, if you're a guitar player and your finger is touching the strings and people can hear it, um, they will they will hear your story. So you better have something to say. This is a, this is just a truth, you know? And, um, and the reason why I mention this is because, you know, as guitar players, we admire people who take technique into the stratosphere. You know, we, we, we can't help it, you know, cause we identify with how difficult it is to play the guitar. It's always going out of tune. It's it's convoluted. It's you know it's hard to fit into, especially to modern music. And the younger players today are doing just things on the guitar that are astounding, absolutely astounding, really amazing. Uh, however, the truth about guitar playing uh, that they ha- that the, every younger generation, the, even the ones that haven't started yet, are going to have to understand is that if they want to be known for for their uniqueness they actually have to learn how to play less because the more you play the less time the audience has to hear that connection between your fingertip and the string because it's too fast they can't hear it uh the more fingers you use you know like you know when i'm using my little pick on the on the strings to flutter that you that's not joe anymore that's just a pick anybody can imitate me doing that and so you know this this was i think one of the brilliant things about eddie van halen was that when he started with his tapping thing he he took it only so far you Mm -hmm. could still hear it was eddie when he did it and there are millions of others who can do it better than he but you can't tell who they are so Uh what does that tell you it tells you that as the technique and the note quantity gets higher and higher, you're, the average audience cannot hear the difference unless you've somehow created a compositional context that is so original from everybody else, kind of like Beethoven, you know. When Beethoven came on, he played so many ideas in one piece of music, everyone thought he was crazy and they hated him for it. But they couldn't ignore the fact that taken as a whole, he'd done something with the compositional quality and the message and he couldn't be ignored uh and and that's why we know his name today uh, from the compositional content not because he played a lot of notes a lot of people can play a lot of notes and uh so when you're sitting there and and you can play as fast as the fastest guitar player and and you sit near and you go now how come everybody knows bb king's name (laughs) (laughs) you just think about that for a second yeah Every note that BB played, he made sure you could hear it was him, his fingertip, telling you his story, showing you his feeling. And the faster you go, the harder it is to send that message out. So you got to make that connection between the message you're trying to 
send out the story you're trying to tell and how you're doing it. You may be working against yourself. Sometimes you need to be the fastest guy ever. And, and so I'm all for technique. I love all the players that play faster than I will ever play and more complicated. I literally love it. And I watch them every day because it makes me feel good. Yeah. But I've often said to my students, all techniques are the same. All chords are the same. All notes are the same. There is no scale better than any other scale. It's all equal. They're just tools in a toolbox that us as musicians have to understand. We use them to elicit emotions, to make music, to accompany people's lives. That's what we do. So don't get freaky about the technique. That's It's just tools. You know what I mean? I know what you mean. I appreciate those words. Those are wise pieces of advice. I definitely appreciate it. So Joe, as sorry, we, uh, sorry for the long answer. <laughs> oh no, man. I would, I would sit here and talk to you all day. I, I know you have other things to do. So, uh, as we wind down here, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to be on guitar villains today. Uh, it's been a great honor thank to you. talk to you. Uh, you've been a huge inspiration in my guitar life for a, a long time. So this has been a, a huge privilege for me. And oh, great. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I'll look forward to seeing what treacherous plots you devise next in your <laughs> musical endeavors. Ah, oh, yes. Yes. Treacherous plots. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, you know, I identify with this guy here because he was, you know, metaphysically, uh, challenged, you know, the poor guy, he was oh, in yeah. love and then he gets turned into this and, uh, yeah, he's been both villain, uh, and good guy. Uh, mostly good guy in, in this comic strip, but uh, turned into a bad guy uh, in the Marvel films. But um, yeah, one of these days we'll have to get him some clothes, you know? <laughs> <laughs> At least some sunglasses. <laughs>